Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, August 15th, 2016, the tanking Trump meddling Putin edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Joined as usual by my two co-hosts, Cristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Cristalia? I am doing all right. Can I just see whether that meddling Putin was as in Olympic meddling Putin or was uh, you meant meddling in the other sense as well, uh, interfering it sense? Is in the other sense of the word, although Olympic puns would be timely, given that we've just spent 15 minutes before the episode started talking about what we weren't doing at Olympic editions. That's the closest you're getting. Thank so you. Just I to tried. slip it in there. I tried. Uh, unless we get it in under number of the week. And Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and uh, Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you? How are you doing, Scott? I'm feeling very golden today. I hope you are as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> two for two. Yeah, I am... Uh, um, I'm feeling bronzy at best, I think it's fair to say. Oh, you Olympian cynic. (laughs) Our two topics this week. First, Donald Trump, the Republican Party's erratic anti-establishment nominee for the presidency of the United States, tumbles in the polls. Has his campaign at last entered the electoral death spiral predicted wrongly so many times before? Second, as Vladimir Putin hugs Turkey, props up Syria, cries terrorism in Crimea, and allegedly sticks Russia's oar into the American election, what's this guy's deal? and how can we deal with him? Party conventions are over and the US presidential election campaign is now in its final hundred days. In November, in case you've been living in a soundproof room, although I think even that wouldn't do it, you'd probably need to be in some even more secure facility to avoid information. Yes. American voters will choose between former New York Senator and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and reality TV star pretend billionaire and pantomime lout Donald Trump. Over the course of the campaign so far, Trump has said and done so many offensive things that I think it would be literally impossible to list them all here. But they include multiple instances of brazen racism, chauvinism and implied threats of violence. His policy program, to the extent he's articulated one, has terrified informed observers who said that if implemented it would bring about about a global trade war, security crises in Europe and Asia, and the erosion of democratic government within the United States. That sounds like quite a manifesto to run on, doesn't it? In spite of all this, however, he somehow managed to remain apparently competitive in the opinion polls until recently, aided in no small part by his opponent's unpopularity. But two and a half weeks since the curtain dropped on convention season, the opinion polls seem to be showing that a sizable and sustained gap has opened up between the contenders with Clinton up by an average of eight points in national polls and an even larger margin in a number of key swing states. So, is this a late summer blip or is the Donald done? If so, how will a candidate defined by boasts of unstoppable winning manage the journey towards increasingly likely defeat? And what will be the legacy of this diabolical campaign for American politics post-November? Okay, let's, uh, let's go to the first of those first, shall we, Scott? Um, We've, people have attempted to call it, you could do a fun montage, no doubt, of people falsely claiming that this was the moment uh, when Donald Trump's campaign finally entered the slalom downhill towards what, <laughs> by any system of political uh, or indeed human merit, ought to be a crashing defeat. Um, is this finally it? Have we arrived at the moment where the curtain has been pulled back to reveal um, uh, horrors sufficient for this campaign to be in the final, the final doomed straight. I mean, the curtain was pulled back months ago to reveal mm-hmm. this arch demon on our TV screens. It's just that it was such an entertaining spectacle. He wound up winning the Republican nomination. Does it mean that he's doomed now? No. I mean, you, you never tempt fate in politics. Uh, there are scenarios such as if something comes out of the email scandal surrounding Hillary Clinton, which could constitute a criminal charge, even though the FBI has ruled it out up to this point. Mm -hmm. Whether there is some type of incredible evidence regarding her supposed complicity in the Benghazi deaths when the the attack on the consulate in Libya that killed four Americans in 2012, even a health scare. And she has had those a few years ago. She had well, the right-wing internet seems to be in one of its uh, periodic uh, whirling dervish furors about that issue at the moment because there's all sorts of speculation about uh, having seizures and various kinds of illnesses. Any port in a storm, 
for the right wing. Uh, and even though I say you can't call this election, this is not a blip in terms of what's happened with the Trump campaign. I mean, I, and I, I preface this by saying I was plenty wrong this spring about the Republican nomination process. But still, there were some things that were markers that were laid down there. He was running against 16 other people at that point. He wasn't running one-on-one. He only ever had a significant, but still a significant minority of the Republican vote. He never had majority support. He was not playing to the center with what he was saying. And up to this point, historically, you do not win American elections from the margins. You win it from the center. I said all those things back in the spring. And in a sense, from my point of view, you see this after the conventions are done and when we get down to the, the really serious campaigning. Now, all of this has been aided and abetted by a fundamental miscalculation, I think, by Trump, which is that the media will seize on anything he says and any attention is better than no attention. Mm-hmm. And he was largely right during the Republican process. You know, he could get away with tell, saying that Ted Cruz's father was complicit in the assassination of Kennedy. It makes a great story. He's just asking questions, Scott. He's just, just asking, asking questions. questions. Just ask questions. Just, Never claimed you know, anything. Just, just saying. Yeah, exactly. Just saying. He could belittle Marco Rubio, go with lying Ted as a catchphrase. He could do all of this, and he could hit and run because that's the nature where the primaries are. Now, in this case, he makes a statement, and the Clinton and the other side of this is that the Clinton campaign has been extremely smart. They just are saying nothing. Absolutely saying nothing about this. But the media has shifted as well. Because now they've built him up, and now it's time we can mm-hmm. to tear this guy down. Now, the... There are exceptions to this. A good element of Fox News is still so off their unfair and unbalanced spectrum that they're going to back Trump um, against Jesus Christ, if Jesus ran, let alone Hillary. But even a lot of the Republican establishment media, Wall Street Journal is a notable example in print, uh, the mainstream broadcasters, it's just like this guy cannot become a president because and, and so, therefore, they keep the focus not just on isn't this entertaining what he said. It's just how dangerous what he said. Mm. And that makes a huge difference. Mm. Uh, I will add one thing. I think there was a tipping point. I mean, I'm always hesitant to say this, this, as Adam prefaced, this was the moment. But when Trump went after a military family, even if it was an American Muslim family he was going after in his racist way, when you go after a military family who lost a son in battle in Iraq— um, then you cross a line, I think, with a lot of Americans. Mm. Um, it's one thing to go after people who are supposedly threats to us, but someone who's defending the country and going after his parents, after the father, Kizer uh, Khan made an incredibly powerful speech, at the Democratic Convention. That, I think, was, was sort of the moment a lot of the Republican establishment said, oh, wait a minute, we're not going to win with this guy. I, don't, I, think, I think they decided they weren't going to win with him anyway, but now it gives them basically the foundation to say, we're walking away from this, we'll concentrate on the congressional races, and we're going to let Trump hang himself. Hmm. I mean, there, there is a, there's so many things I could say about Trump, but we've got limited time. I mean, here, here's one. But there's been a kind of ongoing argument, at least in my world, uh, which is not highly populated with Trump supporters, so it's mainly from the perspective of people who are concerned about how this was going to play out once he got into the general. There's some people who had the view that he's secretly smart, that they, this is a guy who appears completely out of control uh, and uh, like he's just an ignoramus with no impulse control who's saying 10 stupid things every day, many of them gratuitously offensive. Um, And then there are others who say, oh, no, he's deliberately strategically unleashing these offensive remarks or these not even dog whistle but just straight up whistle signals to various parts of the electorate and he's whipping up therefore a coalition of people who are very supportive of him then when he gets as far as the general election or at some point during it he suddenly like stands up straight straightens his tie uh coughs to clear his throat and begins to project this much more presidential uh, version of himself knowing that he's got those supporters uh in the bank and, you know, that I, I, I never believed it was going to happen, but I was, it was, you know, it was a plausible enough theory when presented well that I thought maybe it, it, it had some, some legs to it. What I think we've seen over the course of the last few couple of weeks especially is just the death, the final absolute death of any possibility that either this is part of some strategy 
that will ultimately prove uh, rewarding, or that it's one persona that he's wearing that he can swap off and 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 adopt another. There is no other Donald Trump underneath this. And not only that, but he can't even pretend uh, to, to be a different kind of, of Donald Trump. You know, to give a couple of the, the examples from the last couple of weeks of cavalcade. Uh, one, as you say, a speech from uh, the parents of a dead war veteran um, who you know, died in heroic circumstances. They gave a speech that wasn't even in prime time, that need not have done anything like the damage that it might have otherwise done if it was drawn to wider attention, that he couldn't, if, if, he, if he had any sense, just let it go. Not only did he, did he not let it go, but he decided the way to engage with it was a full frontal assault on the honour and integrity of these people, uh, and therefore indirectly of the, of the dead soldier as well. And uh, no doubt wider veteran communities saw it, saw it as, an, as an attack on them. And then spent days days not backing down, uh, engaging in a slanging match in public with the worst possible people that you could conceive of if you decided to do it, to have that kind of slanging match. Then, like a few, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the last couple of days, he's made uh, uh, something that, despite best efforts, cannot be interpreted as anything other than a joke about the possibility of someone shooting <laughs> President Clinton should she be elected as a way of preventing gun control, and then spent two or three days arguing that President Obama was the founder of ISIS. Uh, and they kept, people kept saying to him, well, I heard what you're saying, Donald, but maybe, maybe what you mean is that he in some sense bears a broad responsibility for a failure to successfully address Islamic extremism. And that we, no, no, I mean he founded ISIS, <laughs> hanging onto the phrase for days and days and days. And what all of that just seems to show is that, you know, this is what the, the worst fears suggested early on, uh, a barely coherent, agitated, erratic person who knows nothing about anything, is disinclined to learn, and who can't control himself when a microphone's in front of him. And I think, you know, I was, I was fearful that maybe you can get all the way to the general election before that starts to catch up with you, but eventually you've just done the rounds of alienating so many people, not in a strategic way, in, like a, in a scattergun way, uh, that 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 it has to it has to hurt you. And if Hillary Clinton wasn't the opponent, he would probably it probably would have happened sooner because it seems to be the complete unwillingness to engage with her as anything other than a traitor and a demon on the part of some habitual Republican voters that's that's put her that, that's kept, that's kept him going. The one thing I will say is like there is a smart version of the campaign he's run, which attempts to harness some of these dark forces of chauvinism and nationalism and you know religious uh, xenophobia. Uh, and, and so on and so forth. And I can imagine someone with more self-control and more political nous and with their wits about them might well have run a campaign that used some of those forces for political profit and maybe we will see that in the future. But he is not that candidate and this is not that campaign. It's been a cartoonish display of, uh, of awfulness. And therefore the question I have left is, well, I don't know, are we... Are we to conclude that we are unlucky, that dark forces that would otherwise have remained packed away have been dragged out into the open in a very divisive way by someone who has star power and celebrity latching onto them? Um, Are we unlucky that that's the case, or are we lucky that these dark and terrifying forces that properly... Uh, strategically used could have turned into a, a, a political campaign with much more conventional success had someone completely incapable of even basic self-control or rudimentary political strategy and management atop the ticket. I guess we'll only know when we see past this election if anyone else manages to take it further. Your presumption seems to be, though, that he won't be elected still. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the numbers now and I'm thinking it's possible, but really super hard to drag it back from here mm. my my question to you guys was you've talked a lot about um donald trump's role in the demise of donald trump but i watched a fair amount of the democratic convention as well both conventions um as a marked change in my approach to american uh, politics <laughs> and i thought they did a pretty good job um, and so I was wondering the extent to which they've played a, a role in that. And I know Scott started by talking about the intelligence of the campaign by being quiet in the face of his uh, attacks. But how did you guys see the convention? I, it's a great point, Crystal, and I think you're right to, to bring us back to that. Um, the conventions were, of course, separated 
by only a, what, a week from each other, yeah. right? They mm -hmm. were melee. Yeah. And, the Republic, and they were early. They're not normally that early in the summer, are they? They, usually they're usually in August, yeah. And, they, and the nature is that we've sort of extended the presidential campaign that they roll these back into July. And be, because you get a bounce off of a, normally off of a convention, the Republicans go first, and you get a bit of a Trump bounce. And I can remember that at that point, you know, 538, you know, the, the tracker that, that I follow, a lot of people follow, said, all right, this, this election is almost 50-50. Yeah. This is almost a toss-up yeah. at this point. And the Democratic convention started off the, on the Monday, and Adam and I were, you remember we were discussing, it started mm -hmm. really, really badly. Mm -hmm. Well, the first day it was, was touch and go there. Yeah, I mean, the Sanders supporters mm -hmm. booing mm -hmm. Hillary, um, some of them even adopting the Republican chant of lock her up. Yeah. Uh, Bernie tried to mollify them with a speech, which was okay, but not great. But then I can, you can remember that point, is that Monday night when Michelle Obama yeah. came out, and it was interesting because if you go back and look at the dynamics of it, first, she projects herself as a figure above politics. She makes the appeal, the very effective appeal to family from the very start. Of course, as a person of color, mm -hmm. right, reaching out to that broader constituency. And it just changed the mood of the entire convention and the media coverage of it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Barack Obama follows up a couple of days later, one of the best speeches I think he's given. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they were able to give that lift. Now, at that point, Hillary's going to get her balance, and that's the critical period, though, which is, is Trump or Trump and his campaign, and is he going to get some decent advisors, sit him down and say, look, go back to your advantage on the, on your, on the issues. Go back, you know, portray the problems with character, but make sure you don't appear to be crazy. And it's there, a high bar to set for a candidate. It was. It? If, you, if, you could just, if you could just not Don't seem dangerously unstable, then, then <laughs> so, we're in with a chance here. So to add to what Adam said, so there's a moment here, and there's always these moments that I think if, if it goes the way we think it will, you match it. On a Monday, he gives a speech where he stays on script. Yeah. He reads from a teleprompter, and everybody's going, thank God, because he reads the economic plan that they got. Now, it's not much of a plan, but it says all the things like cut regulation, lower taxes, mm -hmm. uh, especially reduce corporate taxes, invest in America. Thank you. Within 24 hours. So he's got the news cycle. This is the economic plan. He's got it in his hands. Within 24 hours, he makes that speech that Adam referred to, which is calling on the Second Amendment people to do something about Hillary, and Second Amendment people being those who oppose gun control. It's read as, although I think it was actually more of a slip on his part. I don't think it was a deliberate call. It was, it was yeah, it was, it was an off-the-cuff one-liner yeah. of the kind that, you know... I mean, it's a custom. Right, well, it's, it's the distinction between being a guy who likes to talk huh. a lot in public and being a presidential candidate. Like, there are many things I say and do on a daily basis that probably if I was running to be president of the United States, I would be not advised to say and do. And it just seems to be internalizing that distinction between what you can do if you are and aren't in that capacity is completely beyond the man. Yeah, and I think that's, that's very well put. There's absolutely no filter on what he's going to say. Now, we'll add to this, though, since we take it, you know, we bring in the Democrats, but we'll add to, one of the problems is, is that Trump has a very dicey campaign uh, advisory staff. Um, yeah, we'll, the, we'll come to that in, option, uh, in topic two a little bit as well. So to uh, foreshadow it, though, but yeah, what yeah. we're going to come to is that Paul Manafort, you know, supposedly his, his main campaign strategist, or at least his PR strategist, you know, the, the latest is that he allegedly received $12.7 million off the books mm. from um, the, the former government, the pro-Moscow government uh, of President Yanukovych. Now, Manafort's come out and denied it, say that, but just to have that allegation running around on top of the hacking allegations that the Russians are interfering, yeah. Well, well we, we forgot all about that because he said in the course of his response to that that he invited the Russian government to please hack Hillary Clinton's emails uh, still further to locate any of the ones that may be missing. That's the problem with this. You can't even keep up with yeah. how many things, any one of which would ordinarily be disqualificatory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to give you, to take up Adam's challenge of have we had a candidate like this before? We have, but in a, in a much earlier media age, and that in 1968 was third-party candidate George Wallace, you know, who, hi, everybody, from my home state of Alabama, the, uh, the racist, you know, governor of the state running on a state's rights, anti-civil rights platform, very provocative as a statesman. His vice presidential candidate is Curtis LeMay, who advocates nuking North Vietnam. And, but those guys pull 12 percent of the vote, I think about 12 percent mm -hmm. in the general election. And had Wallace been more than a regional candidate at that point, 
which he tried to be four years later and was on the verge of becoming well, the Second Amendment shot. people uh, uh, found their way to him. Yeah, exactly. Then, Although not, not, not upset by that issue, I wouldn't imagine. No. Yeah, just, that, just, just enjoying their privileges in that regard. Yeah. So Adam's playing upon the irony that, yeah, he is shot and paralyzed while being supposedly on this defense of your rights, et cetera. So we have had that type of xenophobic, we have had that type of racist campaign in the past. What made Trump a bit different beyond everything else is, one, it's in a new media age, and two, he's Trump. <laughs> That's all I can say. There is no precedent for the man. To say one more thing that I think is worth saying as we look forward to what comes next, um, if we suppose, as all sanity and decency and indeed my remaining faith in democracy as a feasible system of government suggests we should, if we get to the point where Donald Trump is, is defeated, not entirely because of his ideas, but just through the combination of incompetence and dangerousness and the ideas all, all together, um, like what, what comes after that? And I have a couple of worries. One, they're both focused on legitimacy. One is the idea that Donald Trump is himself going to claim he's already laying the groundwork for this, that the election is rigged in some mm. way, that, that basically, despite the fact that there are double-digit poll numbers saying in Pennsylvania he's behind, he's saying things like, there's no way I could lose Pennsylvania unless there's massive rigging. So, you know, f bottom line, the institutions of the U.S. government are not going to have any truck with that and what limited disorder he provokes would quickly be suppressed. So I'm not worried that there's going to be like an anti-democratic coup or anything, but it will be another blow against people's faith in the system uh, if he kicks off big style about how the election has been stolen from him in some way. Mm -hmm. So, so there's, there's some concern about you know, yet another big shaving coming off the norms that are required to preserve everyone's participation in American democratic life. The second thing is setting aside Trump, presuming he just goes away, God willing, somewhere, inshallah. There is how the mainstream Republicans will react. And my worry is increasingly this, that even though it is their party that is responsible for nominating this clown, uh, this this bomb juggling clown uh, to be a candidate for the presidency, and therefore they are the ones who have responsibility for creating this situation above anybody else. If he goes down to a big defeat in this election, I feel like the mainstream Republicans who will then be attempting to you know get their party back on their feet will start both thinking and maybe even arguing that somehow the fact that she only beat him rather than some other proper candidate delegitimizes her victory. And the bigger her victory over him in some weird way, the less legitimate her, her presidency will become because it's more, it's more clear that the person she beat wasn't a, normal, wasn't a normal candidate. So having come through six solid years of the legislature being in gridlock, refusing to cooperate with Obama in any way, attempting to imply that he's you know, somehow not really the president despite winning two elections, that we're going to get another, another two, another four years of that because if the Republicans still have control of the House of Representatives at least, which they, which they will, she needs Republican votes for any kind of legislation and they may just go, well, you know, uh, we have our own mandate, we disagree with everything you want to do, you only became president despite your own massive unpopularity because you were up against this guy, see you again in four years when we will, despite all the evidence of how we perform in presidential elections this time around, somehow get it right and produce a good one. So I'm a little concerned that what, what, what little remained in American politics in the way of like mandates and getting stuff done is going to be even, even more limited in an early Hillary Clinton administration because the Republicans are just going to talk the game of illegitimacy and gridlock all over again. I mean, that, that taps into my wider concerns and concerns before Trump. I mean, they, American society for decades has been a polarizing society. I mean, even a contradictory society that on the one hand, you have this inclusiveness, you have this embrace of different ethnicities, different cultures in some ways. Uh, Same-sex marriage, you know, finally being recognized, albeit through the judiciary. And then on the other hand, you have this shouting match, which is encouraged by some aspects of the media, gives it an outlet, which is, all government is bad. We've got a Muslim who's president. Obama's lied about this, and before Clinton's lied about this. A lot of that polarizing rhetoric coming, to, coming from the right and coming from the Republican Party. Uh, Democrats are not immune from it, but it has not been as, as much a phenomenon there now. The effect of that polarizing environment has been to corrode political dialogue, and Trump has exploited that. You know, Trump is just simply, let's just go to the lowest common denominator now, and we're going to exploit all that idea that we've got enemies within, 
fine tradition of American society going back many, many decades, that we've got enemies from without, and that a small group of us are going to make America great again by taking on the entire government, the entire machinery. America was able to cover that up at certain points because Ronald Reagan, and as much as I dislike Reagan, he turned that to political advantage to prevent the entire system from imploding by let's make all America great again. And he could get bipartisan accord behind him. Well, I mean, yeah, extent. Ronald Reagan is like a towering statesman yeah. of centrism and emollience by comparison with what we've seen over yeah. the last few Even months. little Bush who had some very nasty characters in his administration and had people who exploited Karl Rove stand up, exploited that divide in American society. At least, you know, you don't go to basically complete sabotage of the American system. So you've got that polarizing rhetoric. And I'm, despite everything we said that we don't think Trump's going to win, I get a steady stream of stuff every day from friends and family who are echoing what Trump says, not denouncing what he says. So he's got a lot of support still out there. When he loses, those people are going to be bitter. Then you've got, and this, Adam touched upon it, a fragmented Republican Party which still controls one part of the Congress, at least the House of Representatives, and possibly still could hold on to the Senate, although that's looking unlikely. That is a recipe, as you immediately admit, that from January Trump is gone, he'll go off and exploit this to try to basically profit as much as he can, whether it's going back and hosting The Apprentice or another big deal for a skyscraper somewhere or a golf course, come back to Scotland and besiege us. Uh, while he's gone, then we come back. Russian ambassador to the United States, perhaps. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what a great role. And so meanwhile, you know, you get back to the fact that a budget has to be passed, that America has got a real concern about its role across the world, and that you still have issues like gun control that are not being dealt with, but are that's just leading to that corrosion of everyday life. Okay, fingers crossed, everybody. Let's all join hands and hope. Okay, it's time for our number of the week round where we take a number uh, associated with a news story and discuss it briefly. Cristala. Me. Hit me with numbers. Sure. I will hit you with <laughs> Was that in a reaction or is that just something you shout periodically? <laughs> it depends on who, who calls my name. Um, this number is zero. My number of the week is zero, in fact. And that is the percent of credibility the Australian government has left with oh. human rights actors. I feel like you may be evading the spirit of the number of the week round, but and I'm going to let you continue. people suffering under its policies. Adam, because I know you're a stick for the laws, for the rules of this of this thing, having can I just put on the record before we go back to my number of the week mm-hmm. that Adam Quinn uh, banned us from talking about the Olympics and then considered doing um, Michael Phelps's uh, number of ne- gold medals. Ne- as ne- nearly of had a had a tirade about swimming and Olympic medals, but, but then uh, thought better of it. Yeah, if anyone would like to know my views on. Uh, the concept of record-setting Olympic medals totals and the problems with that being dominated by swimming, then by all means, send us a message on our Facebook page uh, or or on Twitter and I'll be happy to unburden myself. And Connor will swiftly delete that. But back to my number of the week, which was zero, but if you want a high one, it's 2,000. And the reason... Now we're talking. There, there you go. The reason that I bring this number of the week to our table to our pod, is that this week there were 2,000 leaked reports from inside uh, Nauru's asylum-seeking detention centre that detail assault, sexual assault, self-harm in the detention centre. And these are overrepresented by children. So we this have... Nauru is a place where Australia uh, sends its would-be uh, asylum seekers, It right? is. Thank you for the clarification, Adam. Um, I had assumed that because people had followed my previous rants in my numbers <laughs> of the week that they would know that Nauru is where Australia sends its asylum seekers, legitimate um, asylum seekers and, and uh, other applicants. But 2,000 leaked reports, 51.3% of those reports... Um, are of children who have been harmed, though kids are about 18% of the population of Nauru. And what it does is it reaffirms the 2012 and 13 reports um, and expands on them that, and those reports essentially came out and said that there is 
uh, rampant sexual abuse and assault by the people running the detention centres and that the Australian government uh, turns a blind eye to it. And that comes on the back of a report by the state broadcaster ABC about two weeks ago um, that broadcasted footage showing Indigenous children in detention being hooded, abused and bound. Uh, So we have um, a very specific culture of responses and a culture of incarceration and complicity in Australia in its legacies of exploitation, and that is why, from me, it has a number of the week of zero. Grim stuff, a ruling story. Scott? I wish I could lighten the mood, but I'm afraid that the number of 132 takes us to some other dark territory, albeit some dark territory where some humanity needs to be recognized. 132 is the number of members of the White White Helmet Civil Defense Organization in Syria who have now been killed, most of them, almost all of them, by bombing by either the Assad regime or by Russian warplanes. There were more casualties this past week. I could add other numbers to this. In the past uh, 40 days, there have been 40 medical facilities, hospitals, clinics, blood banks, drugs warehouses that have been damaged or destroyed by these airstrikes. Uh, I could add the number of uh, three, which is the number of functioning hospitals that function in some form now in East Aleppo, uh, Syria's largest city, population between 250,000 400,000 who are in that area. Uh, zero, which is the number of hospitals in western Aleppo province that are now functioning. So hundreds of thousands of people without medical care. But after a while, the numbers almost become numbing. You know, it, it's like, where's the shock if you just add and add and add? So I guess to put it in terms of a bit of hum, human perspective into this is to contrast those who are dying, so doctors, staff, patients, volunteers who are trying to rescue the victims of airstrikes with the way that this is portrayed, for example, and again, I know we'll talk more about Russia in the upcoming segment, but I will focus on propaganda, which has come from Russia which has put out the line that the White Helmets organization is linked to al-Qaeda. And that's because the White Helmets operate in areas where sometimes you have members of a jihadist group come Jabhat al-Nusra who function, and the White Helmets do not say they will refuse care to someone who is injured in a strike, even if they happen to be a jihadist. And you'll see propaganda that says, that at the same time that they're linked to al-Qaeda, somehow they're also a creation of the U.S. government because there have been some U.S. and British funds from civil society organizations that have gone to the White Helmets. Uh, So somehow this organization is a puppet of both Washington and of Osama bin Laden's ghost. And this is propaganda that not just the Russians put out, but that you see people who call themselves activists in Britain, the U.S., Australia, who they will repeat. Um, someone named Vanessa Bealey, uh believes that the White Helmets are an evil organization. She is a very well-connected daughter of a former uh, foreign office, longtime civil servant the foreign office, uh, Professor Tim Anderson, who is, I believe, at Sydney, uh, who has written books about the conspiracy against Assad and who openly, so I'm, we're safe here, we're on public record, has put out the signs that the White Helmets are, in fact, this puppet. And I raise this number simply not to denounce the propaganda. I'm not happy with it, but not to denounce it. But for a moment to say, here's the propaganda, and if you can, please set it aside, at least for this moment, to remember that those who are dying, whatever we think of the wider Syrian conflict, they are dying attempting to save lives, not to set up world domination for any group, not to serve power, of any tyrant or any terrorist, they are dying and should be respected for the greatest sacrifice rather than becoming a casualty after death, as well as a casualty in the way that they were taken from us during this conflict. I'm going to take us uh, somewhat closer to home. My number is 
130,000, which is the number of members of the Labour Party who have joined since, I believe it's January, uh, who have been through the courts over the course of the last seven days trying to insist on their right to vote in the upcoming leadership election because the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party uh, decided some weeks ago that those who had joined after that point should not be permitted to vote. There was a, a court hearing that decided at the beginning of last week that they should be able to vote and then on appeal it, fa- it turned out that that was all wrong after all uh, and that they shouldn't be allowed to vote. Now, the reason why this is uh, why this is important is, uh, I guess, twofold. One, because it demonstrates the general internal strife within the Labour Party, which is coinciding with a rise in the popularity of the Conservative Party, despite all of the catastrophic fallout of a largely Conservative engineered Brexit um, Brexit meltdown, um, and therefore it's not great for the Labour Party to be having these kind of fights within itself. However, it also reflects uh, the, 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 the fact that one of the major issues in the Labour Party at the moment is that there has been a huge wave of active new members who have joined the Labour Party in support of Jeremy Corbyn. The, uh, he wouldn't want to be called hard left, but I'm going to go ahead and call him hard left uh, leader of le- leader of Labour. And this 130,000 were imagined by those who wanted them not to be allowed to vote to be almost overwhelmingly in support of, of Mr. Corbyn. But even with them disqualified, there is still a large number of people who uh, who are in the electorate for this, um, uh, for this leadership election who would not have been involved in previous Labour leadership elections prior to the Corbyn era and who are overwhelmingly in, in support of him. I don't think this uh, number of the week round is a, is a good opportunity to get into the weeds of uh, the rights and wrongs either of Labour Party internal governance or, uh, or indeed of, of support for Jeremy Corbyn. But I will say that it's interesting that it, like, the way it's discussed is providing a real focus point for what I would have thought was one of the most widely understood political science 101 things out there, but which really doesn't seem to be uh, jiving with the general public or with many people who talk about this, which is that there is a distinction between the kind of people that you can get to join an activist base within a political party and the number and the views of those you will need to solicit votes from in order to win a general election. And if I hear one more time from anyone on social media, in person, in any other setting... The argument that it is ridiculous to say Jeremy Corbyn is unelectable or that his policies don't uh, uh, don't reach out to the median voter that he needs to win to get a general election victory because here is a photograph of a rally with a couple of uh, a couple of thousand people at it or even a couple of hundred thousand people at it then I will smash my head through a window or something because it is like whether you are for Jeremy Corbyn or against him or any of his analogues on the right or the centre can we all please just accept that enthusiastic activist bases are useful if properly channeled but are not a substitute for the much larger number of people you need to vote for you in a general election. And indeed, the things that appeal to one may not be the, uh, pulling in the same direction as the things that, that, that would appeal to, to another. Donald Trump isn't the only political figure who's had a busy schedule upsetting people over recent weeks. Russian president and bare-chested horseback rider Vladimir Putin has been no slouch. Russia's recent honor roll of high-profile diplomatic moves include 1. Public claims of uncovering a Kiev-directed terrorist plot in Crimea, a territory Russia illegally annexed from Ukraine in 2014. 2. Continued casualty-heavy bombing inside Syria, where Russia is the chief ally of the Assad regime's bloody fight to defeat its domestic enemies, and three, swift moves to restore close friendship with Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's authoritarian president and close friend of the podcast, who (laughs) needs all the powerful friends he can get after last month's failed coup attempt against him. Putin has even managed to insert himself into the US presidential election news 
with US government intelligence strongly suggesting Russian responsibility for hacking and leaking emails belonging to Democratic Party officials with a view to influencing the course of the election. Investigative journalists have also raised serious questions, and I wrote this intro before this morning's New York Times, but it's certainly safe to say this has been uh, magnified many times uh, in importance since this morning's uh, stories, raised serious questions about the extent and nature of Donald Rumsfeld's ties to Russia, highlighting the apparent importance of Russian money flowing into his own opaque business finances and the presence of senior advisors, in particular campaign manager Paul Manafort, um, with a history of work on behalf of oligarchs. Russia has form when it comes to political meddling. For example, uh, its banks helping to finance the campaign of far-right candidate Marine Le Pen for the French presidency in an election next year. So, what to do with a problem like Vladimir? Uh, and aside from the question of whether his behavior is acceptable, what does this guy even want? Uh, Kristala, give me, some, give me some understanding here. I understand that the thawing of relations between Erdogan and uh, Vlad, the Vlad, let's call him the Vlad. We've got the Donald, we've got uh, the we Vlad. Need, we need a Russian bros together. That's right. Horseback bros. Bare-chested horse there, there is a pretty good meme that's been mocked up of the, the Vladimir Putin bare-chest horse-riding uh, photo, which has provided a lot of fun to the memesters over the years anyway, but with Donald Trump inserted behind. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's Donald Trump's real bare chest. I don't know if there are any photographic representations of that exist. Paparazzi seem not to be interested in that, strangely. Um, the, the, the thaw of relations between Erdogan and the Vlad uh, isn't as 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 quick as we think. Um, it kind of started around six weeks ago uh, when uh, Erdogan sent an apology letter to the Vlad at the end of June. What was he sorry for? The downing of a Russian warplane near the Turkish-Syrian border last November. So he showed remorse for that, and he primarily showed remorse for that because Russia slapped a ban on uh, on travel and trade, more or less, with Turkey which uh, Turkey felt acutely, but also Russia, I think, felt acutely. Um, so on the Turkish end, I would say that there's nothing like a, and I'm, I'm going to put it on the record, nothing like a possibly fake coup to uh, help you're build still, love uh, between despots. You're still going down with that I'm ship. Go- I'm, I'm going down with that ship. I think that there's something... That's the hill that- you're going to die on. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this thawing is about six weeks old. Uh, and it's And I think it's important for both Russia and Turkey. And I think both guys are signalling, not just to their domestic constituencies, but importantly to the West, that we've got each other, so uh, we don't need you. And Turkey is signalling to the EU. And it may be a little bit of a bluff here, but, um, but Turkey is saying to the EU, who has cracked down, especially around um, the possibility of, of Turkey reinstating capital punishment, um, Turkey is saying we've got options. Brothers, we don't need we don't need you guys. So there's a lot of kind of show around this part of what of what Putin is doing in regards to Turkey. Um, and I would say that there are economic factors that are key to this speedy-ish rapprochement between Turkey and Turkey and Russia. Um, as we've, I think, talked about in the past, Russian economy is contracting. So I, feel, I, I can quite easily we've, believe we've we talked that. about I think that. We've I don't done know. that, and that you means me that Putin's. I, I'm, I'm going down to say, I'm going down in history to say that we've done that, and I, and that also means linked to his popularity, right? So he's going to be wanting to shore up kind of economic ties uh, with Turkey after sp- spontaneously cutting them. Um, and Russia needs Turkey as much as Turkey needs Russia. So I think that's what's going on in that, on that kind of front. Um, that at least is how I understand the recent love-in between, between the, the, the Vlad and mm. Erdogan. And it, it, did, it did allow... <coughs> bless you. And it, and it did allow us um, sight of, at least uh, to me, one of the more amusing pieces of video real footage that we've seen in recent times, which was uh, uh, an extended period in which Vladimir Putin was kept standing completely alone, waiting in front of a bank of cameras. 
uh, I think they sped it up, but it must have been many, many minutes to judge by the um, to judge by the the the, the pace at which uh, they had to do so to fill up the full three or four minutes of of tape. Why do I find this so amusing? Uh, you might ask. Is it just cruel, cruel desire to see a, a noble leader? Uh, made to be uncomfortable in a social situation. I think it's because Vladimir Putin is so notorious in international diplomacy for keeping other people waiting. It's like his thing, whether deliberately or just because he's so important, he doesn't have to care. Uh, but seeing seeing it done to him, not, and not just when no one's looking, but when everyone's looking, uh, was uh, was kind of delicious. And I would love to know as soon as those cameras weren't there, what, uh, what what words came out of his mouth and what demeanor, what what his demeanor turned into? Because man, uh, he does not he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who, who who interprets those sorts of things as incidental, casual, or indeed unimportant. Well, the little games between megalomaniac uh, autocrats is is what's amusing, I think. But what but what kept me entertained was after that four minutes of of absence of Erdogan. He's a big guy, Erdogan, right? Mm-hmm. And especially in comparison to uh, Vladimir Putin when he's not on a horse. Um, so the the picture of them finally shaking hands and simulating warmth and love was kind of twice yeah. as amusing because of the, the difference in stature. Yeah. So I don't know who he had, uh, as you mentioned on Facebook, I don't know who he had executed afterwards. Oh, I don't think that was me. I think that was someone else on my oh, on, on a comment thread. Well, some I think some someone else said um, you know, there will have been a few garrottings after that, which my response was, well, not even people related to the incident, probably just whoever was handy to make him to cheer himself up a little bit. I, I imagine he probably, uh, uh, you know, has the option of knocking a few people off just as a release of sorts yeah. if he feels he needs it. Far be it from me to uh, speculate. So Scott, so Scott, that's that's an interpretation of what he's doing in the case of of, of Turkey. There is a degree of nose thumbing in Europe's direction, but he has his own reasons, economic, etc. Yeah. What's you you are um, possible? You're certainly the closest follower in this postcode of of what Russia's doing in the Middle East. What what's what's happening? Well, I think to sort of touch upon the Middle East, but also touch upon what it's done in Eastern Europe especially over the case of Ukraine, mm-hmm. post-2014, and then in a broader sense. Putin's been there quite a while now. Is really the general starting point that he, he's dedicated to playing a weak hand as well as he can. And by that, Russia has long-standing economic problems that have not been resolved since the break of the Soviet Union. They have serious distortions within their system. They have the complicating factor of the decrease in oil price, which, of course, oil being one of their main sources of export revenue. And they don't really have that many, to complement this economic situation, they don't have a huge amount of number of political allies to work with. It's you know, the Chinese will deal with them, but the Chinese are always very careful about their relations, to say the least. Uh, most of Western Europe, of course, keeps them at arm's length, and that's beyond the specific issue of sanctions. Uh, the Americans are in this very ambiguous relationship of we have to work with them, but we don't really like them. Uh, and for all the, the touted, I mean, the, the pseudo-overlay of BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, South Africa, now that's not like a you know, a vaunted alliance in the sense of an EU or in the sense of uh, U.S. relations with trading partners. But what Putin does is, is he works off of this relatively weak political and economic situation and indeed even an inferior military position to other powers. He plays the hand very, very well because he plays it very strongly. You do not go on the defensive over this. You take the offensive over it. And really... Ever since that moment in 2001 where he gave a bit of ground, if you might remember, take you all the back there, he gave a bit of ground to Bush where he said, okay, fine, we're going we're gonna to scrap the old Cold War treaties. You can walk out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty where he very cleverly said, yes, we'll support you in the war on terror because that meant he could crack down in areas like Chechnya. Ever since then, he's been looking how to exploit and to recover position. When that weakness is exposed in the case like Ukraine, he hits back hard. And that's all I can say is that they hit back hard, not only in we're going to limit the damage from losing our guy in Ukraine, 
we're going to try to actually reclaim part of the country, either de facto influence over eastern Ukraine or illegally, <laughs> so not de jure, but the opposite of de jure, with the occupation of, of, of the annexation of Crimea. When it came to the case of this complete nightmare in the Middle East that takes place, and everyone is in a completely weakened position. You know, the Turks, the Saudis aren't sure what to do. The Americans aren't sure what to do. The Europeans aren't sure what to do. Okay, Russia's going to chance its arm. We'll go ahead and we'll back the Assad regime with a very strong military intervention. We'll see what we can get out of it. You and I had this exchange with respect to Syria months ago. which <laughs> is even better. It made it on viral on certain portions of the Internet, which is... Really? Yeah. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> I think you called me up for basically threatening a replay of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I think I might have done. <laughs> By actually saying you need to draw a red line with the Russians on the aerial activities in Syria. Now, right. That's not the kind of thing I would think is dangerous. Uh, without going back into that conversation, I do think that when you have someone that plays that weekend playing it by strength, you have to come back without threatening a Cuban Missile Crisis. But you have to come back with firm lines as well. Right? And too often, uh, other countries especially U.S., have been indecisive about this. I think Ukraine, I'm open to being convinced that they, we, they played their own difficult hand badly. No, there wasn't a good hand to play with Ukraine and that they then drew a line with the Baltic states. The Americans have played a horrible hand over the Middle East by trying to work with the Russians because the Russians have no interest in cooperating for a political resolution on the Middle East. They have no interest in it. The Russians will get as much as they can off of exploiting that American willingness and they'll keep trying to drive the cost higher and higher. What does that say to bring this all back around? Into a, well, I think from all of this, there is a question which will go on beyond Putin, which is the relationship with Russia. Mm-hmm. And I think on the one hand, there has to be a recognition that Putin does not do this because he lacks public support. It's been precisely to galvanize popular support behind him, in part that he has taken such a tough line. Because you galvanize that sense, arguably, of Russian nationalism. You galvanize that, that sense of, of loss and betrayal from the end of the Cold War and not actually benefiting from that loss in the years after that. You galvanize all that emotion. You take that, and I think this has to be recognized with the, in what has been done with state machinery. The big push is, is that we are seeing an orchestration of the state beyond even the old references to Soviet, you know, Soviet propaganda, disinformation, to galvanize everything in terms of supposed independent media. If there is independent media, it's being quashed there. Galvanizing media to say, through its, whether it's through RT, Sputnik, TASS, this is how you should see the world. And that has been remarkably successful in a way in which Mr. Trump probably will not be. The Russians have been very clever in playing upon the own doubts and concerns of those outside of Russia to say, you know, you're probably being imperialist again. You know, you're probably being oppressive again. You know, you're responsible for coups again. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've got some friends who, you know, I think of as being pretty politically reputable in most regards, but periodically they'll just share something off RT uh, because it jibes with something that they think already, basically, and they want to share it. So, which, which I, I take as an indication that RT are quite good at tailoring some of their stuff to to, to run seamlessly in parallel with some of the domestic left's various discontents yeah. with our foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, if there's... And if it wasn't for what my knowledge of the institutions and ideology underpinning RT, it would seem perfectly plausible. But you have to step in and go, well, the arguments may be all very well and good, but be aware of the context. What's happening? So when they headlined this morning, for example, second day of violence in Milwaukee, because yet another African-American was shot by a policeman, they're tapping into this. You cannot go back to a Cold War mentality and play it out again. It will just drive probably back into escalate confrontation with the Russians. But at the same time, I think this idea of hitting a reset button, remember that phrase from 2009, and mm-hmm. continually hitting the reset button, it's not going to play while Putin's in power. You, you then play, you give him an opening to exploit so until you get, if there's any way, basically, of him to play on your agenda with what you want to see in terms of political resolutions or whatever, don't imagine that there's some basically 
happy way forward, uh, the way that the Russian system is set up yeah. currently. Well, I mean, if you have to keep hitting the reset button on a machine that often, maybe it's broken, uh, <laughs> is, uh, yeah, yeah. Is, is something worth thinking about. I, I think um, to turn this to the American angle, which I guess is the one I know best, uh, I find it my first challenge in dealing with, 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 with these people, whether it's Putin or Erdogan or, or, or Trump, is to remind myself that, of course, although they appear ridiculous, they are also dangerous because they, like, there are so many things that at least to our ironic sensibility seem inherently laughable, but they also control these apparatuses. And they're, even as they make fools of themselves, we would see it, they're hugely conscious of status and like, literally nothing is more important to them than the constant compulsory validation of, of their status well, and they have a domestic constituency mm. i mean it doesn't matter how ridiculous we find them it's not to us that they play is it yeah and indeed the more that we yeah riff uh, in a hostile manner off them the more that the more that, that that allows them to whip to, to whip up uh countervailing support from their from their own turf when i think about uh, uh i mean i guess if if, if I don't think Donald Trump is that smart and has a master plan, I think I would say Putin is clearly smarter and has more of a plan. But I do think I would hold short of calling it a master plan either in terms of his engagement with, with, with Western politics. These things we're talking about, his funding of, uh, his, his funding of uh, political campaigns like Trump uh, or allegedly and, uh, and Le Pen certainly, that... I don't think he has any kind of thought-through, programmatic plan to try and insert into office people who he can control in any way, both because I don't think he controls these people and because I don't think what he's doing would be nearly enough to actually like, to, to, to be the decisive factor in tilting it. What I think he is seeking to do is irritate and destabilize and generally... Um, undermine the stable orderly operation of the political systems of open societies with whom he has antagonistic relationships and I think it's almost better for him in some ways that the cool calm stable rational normals that he's poking with a stick stay in charge ultimately but they spend so much time firefighting the uh, the problems that are created by these unusual candidates that are um that it, that it benefits him in some ways to to have that happen, but I think what would be interesting is what would happen if one of these people actually somehow won. Like if I mean I say interesting, I mean nightmarish, cataclysmic doom. But 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 like but if if someone like Trump or someone like Marine Le Pen like becomes the the president of the United States or the, or the president of France, on the one hand I can see on a very short term basis there's a love fest because it's like you know these people understand each other on some visceral level that maybe like hillary clinton and 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 and, and vladimir putin like, is made of such different stuff in terms of their experiences what makes them tick how they think politics does work and should work that even aside from national interest they just they're going to rub each other up the wrong way whereas when vladimir putin goes and hugs someone like erdogan i can totally see that it's like you guys have so much in common you should meet is what you would say if they were opposite ends of a party well and likewise with people like trump and le pen you know people who are you know kind of rough-edged crude demagogues with uh, huge egos and an authoritarian set of ambitions but not particularly ideological about it really they just want to be in charge and have large gangs of whooping goons valorize them for their success in achieving that but like after the uh, you know after the first few successful cocktail receptions once the once it becomes clear that well they're like we're running countries off the back of a kind of crass unthinking nationalistic uh, mass appeal well that's not the easiest set of interlocutors to have set up for yourself like you can have some kind of relationships with some of them but there's going to come some point when like one wants one thing and the other wants the other and all the normal self-restraint and, and like you know when 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 uh, Vladimir Putin invades for example Crimea and effectively dares the West to do something about it uh, Barack Obama's response is to say, well, this is the, the, the reaction of a declining power desperately attempting to play a weak hand. I refuse to dignify it with yada, yada, yada. So he puts the best foot forward rhetorically responding to something that he doesn't want to escalate. 
If you do that to someone who is the polar opposite of Barack Obama, to like a fire-breathing nationalist or, or someone who just toys with fire-breathing nationalism as a pastime, there's a non-trivial possibility that they're going to be declined to escalate too. And I, I would be interested to see how those relationships would play out over the long run. Like, it's fun for Vladimir Putin to undermine his, opponent, his opposing interlocutors in liberal Western societies by funding nationalist hard-right candidates who make their lives harder. But if one of those people actually won, how good is that for him? Possibly not so good, unless, unless he truly believes that the financial tools at his disposal are sufficient to allow him to corruptly control a serving president of France or the United States. And I just find that a bridge too far. I think the rewards for them would be far greater to, to stand up to him at that point than to, uh, uh, than to, than to, to be craven. So, yeah, that's, that's my thought experiment, at least. Okay, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview. Please do that. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment because that is quite important. It helps other people discover the podcast. You can also share uh, an episode of the podcast on social media, perhaps. Tell your friends, hey, I discovered this thing. It's awesome. Please, ha- please have a listen. That's how, how word gets around, and we'd really appreciate it. It would be a personal favor to me and or to whichever of the co-hosts you would prefer to have a personal favor in the bank with. Um, that, uh, that, that we would very much be willing to cash for you sometime. Adam speaks for himself only in this regard. We have a Facebook show page, facebook.com forward slash worldview, where you can see uh, links to the show as well as various other things periodically. Our participants today have been Kristalia Kinthu. Where can people find you on social media, Kristalia? They can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. One day I will change my name to Smith, I swear. Well, you, at Smith would probably get you a whole bunch of traffic <laughs> that you didn't want to be receiving. Possibly abuse directed at Labour Party leadership candidates, for one thing. Uh, Scott, where can they find you? At Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. Or at Political Worldview's partner, EA Worldview, the news and analysis website at eaworldview.com. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, you can find me at Adam James Quinn on Twitter if you like, but you will find it much more rewarding to find me uh, on Facebook where I'm Adam James Quinn 161 because I post a whole lot more stuff there. It's better, basically. Sorry, Twitter. Uh, our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. We will be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. 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 Bye.